All right, good evening. All right, so if you all may have not met yet, then my name is Mateo Vergara. I'm actually going to be the youth ministry intern for the whole summer. And I guess before I go ahead and give the survey, I just want to say just a warm just thank you again for this whole congregation and providing this opportunity for me being able to serve and to help in any way I can. And also to be able to kind of just take a little bit of wisdom as well from Luke and being able to learn more each and every day. It's been so encouraging being able to meet y'all and to be able to get to know one of y'all even more and to be able to just have a great time here to serve God and to have this opportunity as well. But with that being said, though, we can know that everyone likes a good underdog story. And sports can give us many of those. I mean, whether it's Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson in 1990, or you can even see the New York Giants defeating the undefeated Patriots in the 2007 Super Bowl. Or if you're a local like me, you can even think about ACU beating UT in the March Madness tournament. But all of those underdog stories are great, but there has always been one that has made it consistently at the number one spot when it comes to the greatest upsets, and it's been known as the Miracle on Ice. Now, for those of you who may not know what this was, this is when the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviet Union team at the 1980 Winter Olympics. Now, to give substance to the matter, the Soviet Union hockey team has been known to be the best in the world. I mean, they had won the gold medal in the past four Olympics dating back to 1964. And even since 1960, when they had gone to bronze, the team had gone 27 with one win and one draw or with one loss and one draw, and outscored their opponents 175 to 44. Against the U.S. hockey team alone, they had outscored them 28 to 7. I mean, this current team coming into the 1980 Olympics was also filled with all-stars as well, including their goaltender who was considered the best goaltender in ice hockey at the time. And during exhibitions, the Soviet national team had been the NHL all-star team in a series best of three to win the Challenge Cup. And on the other hand, when you look at the U.S. team, they only consisted of 20 members, most of them from Boston University and the University of Minnesota. Now, the average age of the team was only 21 years, and I made them the youngest team to play in U.S. history, as well as the 1980 Olympics. All in all, this was a game between pretty much your professional players with years of international play against just amateurs playing mostly out of college. But during the latest exhibition before the Olympics, Soviet team destroyed the U.S. 10-3. to But all this had changed until the medal rounds during the Olympics. Both the U.S. and Soviet team advanced and met each other. And after the first two periods, the Soviet team was in the lead just 3-2. to But then came the third and final period, and the U.S. scored one goal, and then out of nowhere scored another. And they were up 4-3 to with 10 minutes left. Rather than playing defensively, though, the American team kept sticking to their game plan by playing offensively, and it wasn't until the final seconds where each team was scrambling for the puck where sportscaster Al Michaels made the famous call, do you believe in miracles? Now, as great of a story that is, you may be wondering why I decided to bring this up. Some of you could be sitting here thinking that, you know, well, since Chris isn't here to preach tonight, I mean, someone has to bring the sports reference, and I mean, you'd be partially correct, too, but... As great of a miracle this appears to be, we see numerous miraculous underdog stories in the Bible too. And the song that we don as a children's song being My God is So Big, and I thought it was amazing that it was sung during the um, pals as well, is that it just holds so much power because when you listen to the lyrics, it does show that he is strong and he is mighty and there's nothing that he can't do. So if you're following your Bibles, I actually just want all of us to look at Judges chapter 6 and if you have 
been participating with VBS, so it's going to be kind of just a repeat, but we're going to be looking at what Gideon and the Israelites had done, especially with God. Now, in the beginning of Judges, the Israelites fall away and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, big surprise, am I right? But because of this, he gave them to the hands of the Midianites for seven years. And the Midianites were pretty harsh too because every time the Israelites had crops, they would come in and devour the produce of the land. I mean, Israel became demoralized. And in some translations, it said that they were so impoverished that all they could do was cry out to the Lord. God hears this and sends a prophet to him who says, starting in verse 8, he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, from this exchange, we can see two things. And the first is that when we cry out, God listens and answers. But the second is that sometimes we're not really good at listening in the first place too. I mean, one, God knows our struggles. On top of that, he also knows when we're most weak and fills in those spots as long as we let him. But that's where the us or the we part comes in because we have to let him. The hard part is that much like the Israelites, we are all too often stubborn and won't listen. And too many times we can let our suffering prolong when all we have to do is just let him help and let him take control. Now, it also comes to whether we are willing to find the answer. I mean, God always gives an answer too. And whether we see or not, we can tend to forget that he also gives us his answers in his written word. In this case, he sends Gideon to deliver them, but it wasn't as easy as it is said. I mean, as soon as God calls on Gideon to send him, he begins to question why he is to be chosen, because not only is his tribe the least of them all, but he is also the least in his family. But In chapter 6, verse 18, God tells him, you know, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So this reminds me of a time when I was listening to a podcast from a preacher who was reminiscing about the past 20 years when he was involved in ministry. When he was asked about what advice he wished he could give himself, he pointed out that he wished his younger self wasn't so engulfed in the mindset that he just needs to know all the ins and outs of ministry and the Bible and what it took to be a God-fearing person, but rather just realize that God is going to help him get there every step of the way too. He then recalls a time where an older preacher told him, you know, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Again, it's not bad to want to know and have that information. In fact, it's a good thing to have that. But if you're called to do something, God will make sure you're capable of doing that. Jesus also reassures his disciples in the calling that was given in Matthew chapter 28. I mean, when we look at Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, I mean, we can always remember when Jesus says, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But then we look at this last statement too, and that's where he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's an amazing thing because God is always on our side, and isn't that such a relief? I mean, if we look back at Gideon, he was writing his questions as to how he would be able to save Israel. I mean, he was small and weak. But the deciding factor wasn't on him. It was when God comes in and helps him. We are the same way in our spiritual walk. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, I mean, God tells Paul that his power is made perfect in weakness. When it comes to our battle with sin and temptation given from Satan, we are to know that we are not alone. Now, 
Skip forward a little bit more in Judges. I mean, we go to the army that is being formed to battle the Midianites. I mean, if we have heard this story before, we know that the army started with 32,000 brave soldiers, or so we thought they were, because after the fearful were told that they can go home at me, it just whittled down to 10,000. Mind you, this is all against a Midianite army of 135,000 soldiers. But God tells Gideon that there were still too many men and gives them a test which further shrunk them down to only 300. God wanted the odds to be so lopsided that when they were to get this win, they couldn't say anything about how great they were or how they pulled this off, but that they were to know that it was their God all along that was big and mighty in this battle. And he was. But then comes the battle, or as I like to call it, the big scare. Because this is when Gideon's army surrounded the Midianite camp, and they broke pitchers, blew trumpets, cried out, and held their torches up high, and then overtaking the Midianites, and from there lies one of the biggest upsets in history. Now, this begs the question as to why I would tell the story, especially since most of us probably know and know what happens at the end. Well, the thing is that we're in a spiritual battle right now, and I feel like we can sometimes lose sight of what's right in front of us. I mean, as, according to Sun Tzu, who was a Chinese military strategist, he said it best. And he said, you know, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. But if you know yourself and not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. But if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So in our spiritual battle, we need to know the enemy as well as ourselves. And now the enemy should be pretty easy to point out, but just to give more insight, I'll try to refer back to 1 Peter chapter 5. And to offer some backstory to 1 Peter, I mean, this was written by the Apostle Peter in Rome. And instead of just being towards a specific church, it was more of a circulatory letter that was written to several churches within the Asia Minor region. And as a whole, these churches were experiencing some social ostracizing, or in other words, they were just being within a socially hostile environment solely because of their faith in God and Jesus. So if we look in chapter 5, I mean, Peter, he's offering some exhortations to the elders. And I'll begin a little later here in verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, in this situation... Although their environment or community is hostile to them, whether it's through slander or reproaching or reviling, there's only one thing that is behind all of this. And we know that saying, he prowls around, lurks around just to catch us, not when we're at our weakest only, but also when the opportunity to sin is at its greatest. This reminds me of when I was in an accounting class one time. We had a section where we studied about fraud. I mean, it wasn't on how to commit fraud, although that would have been a pretty interesting class, but more on how to identify it and see what developments have been made to prevent them. And when it came to when fraud occurred, it boiled down to a mixture of three things. The first is opportunity, and the second is financial pressure, and lastly is rationalization. But out of the three, the main deciding factor was opportunity. I mean, the same comes with temptation and sin. Sin comes to find us when opportunity best presents ourselves. Whether we are doing okay mentally or whether we're under peer pressure or whichever, we come to sin when the opportunity is at its brightest. 
And it's never a sign that God isn't with us, nor is it because we have no choice and Satan overpowers us, but it's simply because Satan provides the opportunity and we in our free will choose to take that opportunity. Now, we are able to get a feeling of who our enemy is, but just as Satan tempts us by providing the opportunity, we are to figure out ourselves so we may know when those opportunities can arise as well. Now, when it comes to that Sun Tzu quote that I had mentioned before, the only outcome that you talked about where the person does not know himself happens to be just the worst outcome too, where you would end up losing every battle. Now, when it comes to a football team, you don't just put your quarterback as your running back, although the Dallas Cowboys definitely made our quarterback look like one this past season. But with this, we were to try to figure out our strengths and weaknesses and come together to fight off sin. We are to build each other up. We are to stick together. And notice how I keep saying we as well. It's because we are also a family and a team. And much like how Gideon had an army, we're also part of the Lord's army as well. So God gives us each other. And if we were to look into Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we can read about how we need each other as well. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm, warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we know that he gave us each other so that we don't have to feel alone in this world. I mean, we have each other and God is with us all the time, but we are also here to support each other as we fight the greatest war of all time. But lastly, I also want to look at one more passage written by Paul in the church to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. And starting in verse 1, it says, You know, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to the men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. But and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that was going to be a, quite of a long passage, but we'll go ahead and break it down a little bit. So we are to be of one body, saved through the one Christ, and that was given by the one Father, you see, God didn't just give his one and only son to die on the cross so that we are saved individually, but he also gave us each other so that we may be able to build one another up in love so that we can encourage one another, look out for one another, fight the good fight with one another. 
He gave us each other so that we don't have to feel alone in this world, but that we would have each other and that we are to know our individual strengths and weaknesses so that we can strengthen the weak points of one another and therefore grow a body that builds itself up in love. It said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, we are to keep watch over one another so that the devil does not use any of his schemes so that if an opportunity to sin arises for one, we're able to catch it and help that brother or sister, as said in verse 14. We're to help each other to nurture one another in Christ as we reach spiritual maturity. I mean, this battle isn't fought alone. It is fought with God as the head command and all of us in line. So as I study more into word, you know, it almost irks me that we are called underdogs at times because, you know, with God, we were never underdogs to begin with. And we need to recognize whose we are. Now, to end off with a story, I remember back in middle school, I decided to play basketball. You know, I didn't have the greatest three-point shot, nor did I have the best mid-range, nor could I even make as many layups as I probably should have. And I also wasn't as strong of a dribbler, but I did have good hustle and played mediocre defense. So if you know this, this meant I definitely played on C team. But fear not, I mean, I was a starting center standing at a very mountainous five foot seven at the time. And you know, I had to do the jump ball at the beginning of every game. This was also because, I mean, half my team also got cut because of failing grades, and there really weren't many options. <laughs> but, you know, our team was a team like no other. I mean, we had an impressive record of 1 in 10. <laughs> yep, you heard it right. One win and 10 losses. And, you know, and most of our games were blowouts, too, besides one where we went into a double overtime just for one of my teammates to get confused and score a layup in the wrong basket. And... This is just the second shot he made the entire game. And promise me, he was shooting lights out, but not in the right way. And you know what? To make it even funnier, or I guess more sad, whichever you like to feel, I mean, my parents were so supportive of me, even though my team was terrible, that they made every effort to show up to every single game besides one. And that was the one game where we won. And you know what? I even dominated that game with my best performance my whole middle school basketball career. I ended up scoring four points instead of two. But, you know, looking back at this whole thing, I felt like, you know, this is probably pretty close to how our spiritual life without God is like, too. I mean, we get a loss after loss, and sometimes it's us beating ourselves. But you know what? When we have the powerful, mighty God, oh, isn't it great to be on the winning side for once, too? And I know this is going to be going against what Blake said about patience. You know, I got impatient. I even read back to the end of the Bible, too. And we know who wins in the end. But... You know, with all being said, though, maybe there's someone here who is in need tonight. Um, here in a moment, Mr. Jim is going to lead us in a song, but if there's anything we can do to help you, whether it's in baptism or anything else, I mean, let us be there for you. Let us love and serve you in any way we can. And again, if you have any needs or concerns tonight, I ask that you please come forward as we stand and sing.